Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello listeners, welcome back to part two of our conversation with Richard Maud, our first repeat guest for the podcast. If you haven't listened to the first episode, please do check it out, where you'll hear a very personal story from me about being here in Beirut, Lebanon during the recent blast, as well as the first part of our conversation with Richard, which focuses pretty closely on the United States. Today, we're going to jump straight into China, and my first question is about Hong Kong, and then we'll turn to Taiwan and the issue of technology decoupling before moving on to questions about new models of international cooperation, with a focus on what the Five Eyes grouping is doing in particular, and finish by discussing the extent to which Australian foreign policy needs to change to deal with this new era. Okay, let's return to the conversation. Okay, well, let's move on to China. I just want to ask a simple question to begin with. How surprised should we be by the promulgation of Hong Kong's new national security law, you know, should its passage be teaching us anything? And by us, I mean, of course, I mean the Australian government. Should we be updating our priors regarding China? You know, one possibility I've toyed with is that maybe it demonstrates that Beijing is more willing to accept risk in the prosecution of its political core interests than previously thought. Richard, did the law cause you to update your priors regarding what Beijing wants and what is willing to do? Well, this is my favourite of all your questions because mercifully for you, for once, and for your listeners, I can be very brief. No, I think China was always going to assert its authority in Hong Kong and it was really just a case of how and when and I think it regards the risk of the national security law as being relatively low, uh, certainly compared to the challenge to its own authority and to what the party calls its ideological security and territorial integrity. Alan, I'll ask the same question of you, but maybe add to it. If there were any who were surprised inside the Australian government, would there be any concrete significance to an event like this in terms of reorienting Australian foreign policy? Or is this always baked into the expectation, do you think? I agree with Richard. I I don't think it changes assumptions about China's goals. The return of Hong Kong and its integration into the national system was always the objective. But it does, as you were just saying, Darren, I think alter judgments about the Xi leadership's risk tolerance and the timing in which they want to achieve things. So I think that has happened. I think you can see that, for example, in the increased sense of urgency we saw in the sort of language the PM used in his defence update recently. Well, as sad as it may be to contemplate, if we assume Hong Kong is mostly settled as an issue now, the coming storm would be Taiwan. You know, Beijing has a clear policy on unification, so a Taiwan scenario would not be some black swan. And I was listening to a a recent episode of the Little Red podcast where Stanford academic Oriana Skyler Mastro predicted that as soon as Beijing believes it will actually succeed with an invasion, it will do one. And she put a timeline of maybe five to eight years. Gaddy Epstein, who is the Economist's China Affairs editor, expressed similar 
sentiments on the episode. So I, I don't want to ask either of you to weigh in on that, on that question specifically, but you mentioned the Defence Strategic Update, Alan, and the PM in that speech outlined three new strategic objectives that would guide defence planning. One, shape Australia's strategic environment. Two, deter actions against Australia's interests. And three, respond with credible military force when required. Richard, does the Taiwan question now represent the, the single biggest test of these new strategic objectives? No, I don't think the connection is as direct as that. I think depending on what America did in any Taiwan contingency, that could be an enormous test of the alliance. And of course, it's one that Australian defence and foreign affairs officials have been conscious of for a very long time, and which is just another reason for doing whatever we can to help ensure doesn't happen. That is, China does not try forcibly to reunify Taiwan with the mainland. And look, it would be manifestly not in Australia's interest for China to invade democratic Taiwan. And certainly some of the planned capability upgrades that have gone with the defence strategic update would make the ADF better able to engage in what defence rather euphemistically calls high intensity conflict. But I think it's important to note that the strategic update itself is not geared around a Taiwan contingency. It's really about this much bigger and broader shift in our external landscape as China has grown more powerful and more assertive. It's about greater Australian self-reliance and having stronger deterrence capability against more direct threats to Australian interests or, or indeed to Australia itself. Alan, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, I agree. We talked, I think, about Brendan Taylor's, your colleague from the ANU, his recent book on East Asia. I think Taiwan is the most dangerous of the potential regional flashpoints, but that's not the same thing as saying that it's a test of Australian strategic objectives. We'd be highly marginal to the outcome of what would be an absolutely catastrophic contest, for which reasons Richard's absolutely right. It's in all our interests to try to see that it doesn't come to that. Let's move then to maybe the biggest sort of ongoing story around China at the moment, which is technology decoupling Huawei and 5G, TikTok, WeChat. And in looking at this, I see two dimensions to the problem. The first is just a technical one. You know, what kind of mischievous or nefarious activity is possible using various technologies and software platforms and what can be done to reduce vulnerabilities to such activities or minimise the damage if that occurs. And Richard, I remember in your first interview with us, you floated the role of a, of a chief technology officer for government that right. could aid policymakers in understanding these technical dimensions. But there's also then just a simple political dimension, I think. You know, on some basic level, many just don't trust Chinese companies because they don't trust the Chinese government. And the nature of China's system means that it is simply impossible to separate companies from the state. And so the more concerned one is about the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, the harder one is going to be to convince that technical solutions exist. But if that's true, you know, as economist Tyler Cowen likes to say, if you solve for the equilibrium, you may well end up eventually having very little involvement of Chinese technology companies in Western markets, which of course is sort of already the case for, for Western companies inside of China. 
And I say this knowing that the Australian government has so far refrained from banning TikTok. But over the medium term, you know, what is the equilibrium? Is there, for example, something that Chinese companies or the Chinese government could do to credibly reassure the world regarding security concerns? Or maybe the West will just settle on a degree of comfort with the risk and judge the benefits of allowing continued participation are worth it. Or maybe, perhaps least likely, you know, could China open itself up and enable reciprocity on this front? So there are technical questions with possibly technical solutions, but there are also just political issues that may be more intractable. And so for me, stepping back as a theorist, I look at this as a question of structure versus agency. Is digital decoupling just one inevitable manifestation of larger structural forces stemming from major power rivalry? Or do the actors in this drama whether that's Washington or Beijing or the rest of us, have agency in stopping this trend from, or arresting this trend to some extent. Richard, what do you think? I think we have some agency in that even the most like-minded countries with the United States have agency in the sense that they are responsible for their own decisions about the technology that they put into, for example, their 5G networks or the apps that our kids run on our phones and so on. I think, you know, this is one of those issues that's so complex that I like to listen more than I speak on it because there are people who know a lot more about it than I do, including you yourself, Darren. I think your framework is pretty nice, though. There are obviously some real and genuine problems with Chinese technology, and they're amplified by the immense distrust that we now have about many of these companies in this technology. And I do think that's almost impossible for Chinese companies to overcome, especially in the United States. But I also think that you're right to say that technology is well and truly caught up in the larger competition. And it's important to note that for the Trump administration, national security here is not just about cybersecurity or the potential for technology to drive misinformation, for example. It's also about who builds and controls the technologies of the future. And ultimately, it's about who has the strongest and most resilient and most innovative economy, because, of course, economy is the source of national power. You know, where will this go? Well, I, I really, I don't know. I think at the moment we're on a path to a high degree or reasonably high degree of separation. If the Biden administration were to win, that might change a bit. There is a cost to separating out the US and Chinese tech worlds, of course. And that's quite a big cost in the case of the many US companies who make money in or out of China. So the American semiconductor industry, for example, is deeply unhappy with the Trump administration's latest moves on Huawei. Hmm. And Trump clearly doesn't care about that and the people around him don't care about that, but it's possible a Biden administration might. And we might see, and this goes to your point, we might see some modification. We might see at times a different calculation about how much risk the US is prepared to take on and what cost it's prepared to pay. And 5G is an example. So neither America nor Australia wants Huawei to build our 5G networks. But a Biden administration might, for example, decide it's not going to try to entirely kill one of China's most important companies to stop it from rolling out 5G in other countries who've decided mm. that they're prepared to take that risk. 
Having said all that, to come to your last point about will China shift, no, I think that's extremely unlikely. China's crying foul over all of this, including TikTok and WeChat, but of course it long ago banned US social media companies from operating in China, and perhaps the ultimate irony, it also bans TikTok, which of course is the yeah. Western version of a different app that runs in China. Mm. So some people call it a splinter net, which is a quite nice catchy phrase. I do think that's a quite possible outcome, even if a Biden administration were to shift the dial a bit. Alan? Yeah, I want to ask you a question, Darren. You asked the question and Richard, you responded really as though a digital decoupling can be neatly separated from the overall structure of uh, free and open trade, which for you know 30 years we in Australia have said is a vital national interest for us. So the question is, once the pillars of high technology are shaken, does the whole global trading edifice come down? Alan, there's a good interview. Adam Tooze is a sort of economic historian. Yeah, that's terrific. The Seneca podcast recently, and he's written about this as well. And he makes the point that the shipping container and the microchip have done far more to promote globalization, at least, than any GATT round or WTO talk. And so, yes, politics can do major damage, but market forces will still remain a powerful force despite efforts by governments to attain them. So I think there's sort of that dimension. But on the politics, you know, I think the distinction here between absolute and relative gains is important. You know, economic exchange makes both parties better off and international trade makes the trading countries better off, thus promoting the, the wealth of nations. Um, and these are absolute gains. But then countries begin to worry about relative gains, that the other side might gain more from a transaction and be better off overall than you, which then can be a source of threat. And so as the rivalry between the US and China intensifies, more and more of these mutually beneficial exchanges will be evaluated or seen through the lens of relative gains logic. Now, that doesn't mean all trade ceases because at some point the impoverishment of, of shutting down exchange becomes too much of an absolute loss and that creates its own political problems for, you know, for governments. But the pillars of the edifice you describe, Alan, you know, the, the open and non-discriminatory trade, I, I don't see the trading system settling on an equilibrium where they survive in their current form. The question will be where do countries draw the line and what less efficient alternatives arise to replace the old edifice? Okay, well, the weakening of the rules-based system has been much discussed on our podcast and lamented, and it's being undermined you know, by populism and anti-globalist sentiments in the West from the illiberal challenge of China and, and like-minded autocratic governments, and who especially take issue with you know, the regime surrounding civil and political rights. But it's also just being undermined by the tyranny of large numbers. It's just really hard, I think, to get 190 diverse and sovereign states with varied interests to agree on anything. And so with that in mind, and following on from the answer I just gave, I think there are two interesting trends. The first here in Australia is the remarkable increase in the frequency with which the term five eyes keeps cropping up in reporting on Australian diplomacy. You know, in just the past few weeks, we've seen a report that talks about a five eyes friendly university sector in defence and security research collaborations. We saw joint statements on Hong Kong from the foreign ministers of the Five Eyes countries, which were reported in the international media as being a Five Eyes initiative. And then finally, and this one really blew me away, 
it now seems that initial finance ministers meeting of the Five Eyes members is now becoming a regular thing. And so there was an Australian Financial Review report on the 7th of August where Treasurer Josh Frydenberg was talking to his Five Eyes counterparts about the implications of Melbourne's COVID-19 lockdown for the Australian economy. Like, not an unimportant question, but not one I would ever expect him to be talking with those specific ministers or counterparts about. So that's trend number one. And trend number two, briefly, is Democrat nominee Joe Biden's plan to rebuild American supply chains, which is interesting, I think, because the plan emphasises working with allies as a way of resolving supply chain issues in particular. So, you know, on one level, any cooperation between nation states is better than the alternative. And for some challenges, minilateral groupings, whether it's Five Eyes, the Quad, whatever, can be effective. But on another level, we may be, I think, beginning to see a trend where a lot of substantive cooperation is filtered through a security or a trust based lens. Richard, do you see the same trend here? And, and again, solving for the equilibrium, to what extent will the scope and form of international cooperation be determined by great power rivalry? Yeah, it's definitely a trend that you can see really accelerated during this pandemic period. Of course, doing things in issue-based coalitions has long been a mainstay of Australian diplomacy. And I'm sure Alan will remember that if you go back to the very first Australian foreign policy white paper, this was a big thing for Downer, Alexander Downer as foreign minister. But we do have a, a new context here where small group cooperation is being driven by the clash of interest with China. And it does have a very heavy trust element, or if you like, a very heavy values element. So the United States, for example, often frames this galvanizing of small group cooperation in democratic terms. And in Australia, we're doing so as well. So I mentioned earlier the government's interest in building a network of countries in the region. Well, if you go and look at an important and I think good speech that the foreign minister gave on 16 June, she said not just that the pandemic had strengthened Australia's resolve to build such a network, but she said such a network that shares Australia's values and interests. Of course, Boris Johnston has also proposed this D10 grouping idea to help create alternatives to Huawei. Helpfully, I think the values frame is not absolute. It hasn't stopped Vietnam, for example, being invited to participate mm. in the new seven-country Indo-Pacific COVID coordination mechanism, which is sometimes called the Quad Plus. I just wanted to make a couple more quick points on this. One is to point out that China, of course, has its own constellation of mini-lateral groups, and it's done so for a while, and it uses these as vehicles for building influence. The Shanghai Cooperation Group is quite a long-standing one now, for example. China CEC Group, that stands for Central and Eastern European, is another really interesting one in that it it's a bit like a Chinese bridge into Europe, and clearly it's aimed at building China's influence in Eastern Europe and peeling it away to some extent from Western Europe and the European Union. And of course, the BRI is much more than an economic initiative. China uses it to build connections and influence, and also as a convening platform, a meeting platform, if you like, for all sorts of meetings on all sorts of topics. The last point I want to make is that there are many global 
challenges and climate change is the biggest of them all that can't be solved unless China's in the room. So like-minded cooperation can't become a total substitute for the harder grind of broader multilateralism. And here, as I've written and said in the past, it's not going to be in Australia's interests if great power rivalry comes to completely close off the space in which solutions to these truly global challenges can be crafted. Alan, to follow on to Rich's last point there, I mean, he said these minilateral solutions can't become a substitute, but the question is how and how do we stop them from becoming a substitute? And, and there's one vein of international relations theory which tells us that we, one of the pathways is great tragedy, you know, a, a world war or an utterly catastrophic natural disaster, much bigger than even COVID, that rebalances power and, and creates the domestic political will across countries to make the sacrifices necessary to facilitate truly global cooperation. Is there any other way? I mean, need I be so pessimistic? Do you see a pathway back to a substantive whole of world cooperation on issues like climate change? I, th I think in the immediate future anyway, it depends on the results of the US election, but a Biden administration, I think, does off offer hope. I mean, you, you know, you talk about we need a, a great tragedy. Well, if a global pandemic and planet-altering climate change aren't tragedy enough, you know, I don't know what is. So the mere act by the US administration of rejoining WHO and, and the Paris Accords will send a huge signal. And more importantly, as Richard was saying, it'll be an immediate point of policy intersection with China and Europe and the other developing uh, countries. So I do, do think there's a bit of hope there. It won't be easy, and there are other, plenty of other issues in the multilateral system that we know about. More to the point, I mean, it, it's not simply a matter of fixing this up, going down to Bunnings and getting some spec filler and sort of slapping the holes in the walls. One thing I think we really do badly need from academics and from think tanks is some serious thinking about what multilateralism looks like a century on from our first efforts to build a League of Nations. That's profound, deep thinking about multilateralism. And I don't think there's enough of that on the part of either the academic community or governments. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the two dimensions to that which didn't Two problems or two hurdles to that thinking that, that weren't nearly as prominent back in the 1940s. One, a major power rivalry, and two, a much more active domestic polity across the world. And both of those things just stand in the way of cooperation. And the theories that were developed by IR's scholars, you know, sort of the, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, didn't have to grapple with those nearly as much. And, and that's... Oh, and, and num numbers of countries. Is, and numbers uh, of countries too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the final quick section, which is on Australia. Prime Minister Morrison virtually delivered a foreign policy speech to the Aspen Security Forum a few weeks ago. And perhaps the key phrase in it was, quote, neither coercion nor abdication from international systems is the way forward, end quote. And you can clearly see a message there for both Xi Jinping and, and Donald Trump. But the question is, what comes after a speech like that and in, in, in Australia's effort to see such advice heeded? by the two great and powerful friends of us. Almost every article I read on this issue, and indeed 
every podcast I listen to, stresses that Australia needs to do things differently, be more creative, work with different partners, discard outdated assumptions about how the world works and so on. And to me, it's not obvious that this is true, you know, perhaps simply being the best version of ourselves ideally with some more resources, as Alan and I have discussed previously, might be more effective than trying to dial up the creativity to maximum. So a two-part question, Richard, for you. When you think first about the instruments of national power that Australia has marshaled over the years and, and our diplomatic approach, are there elements that are simply unavailable or wholly inappropriate for the present moment? Are there things that we just can't do anymore? Oh, look, I don't think there are things that we can't do. We're in a world where we have to rigorously prioritise given limited resources, but there's only so much ignoring of the world you could do. And a lot of foreign policy, even though it's thankless, is just non-negotiable. You've really got to do it, particularly when you have an Australian foreign policy consensus that it's strongly in Australia's interest to remain engaged globally. I think often when people ask me this question about what we could do better or what more we could do. I, I tend to joke to them that I'm the worst person they could ask because 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 I'm from the system. I've been engaged in the development of Australian foreign policy now for quite some time. And it's always hard to challenge your own views. It's very healthy and important to be challenged on this. And I'm just saying passing that DFAT now has a much stronger institutional capacity to do that kind of challenging in a structured and systematic way, but I am perhaps inevitably a bit sympathetic to your frame. We are obviously living in a very uncertain world. We have a pretty good foreign policy framework. We have considerable domestic strengths. And so feeling our way forward from that base is not a bad strategy for this kind of world. Secondly, as a, a middle power, the range of our foreign policy options for us is not as wide as sometimes imagined. Thirdly, I don't think there's any point in abandoning objectives that even if they've become harder now to achieve, still serve Australian national interests, particularly when there's either no obvious alternative and or the cost of working towards those objectives is bearable. And I think when people call for different, often what they're asking for is more of something rather than something different or a variation on an existing theme. So, for example, I'm all for doing more in Asia, and I think there are some things that we can do better in Southeast Asia. We can rebuild our aid program. We can give our embassies and high commissions more financial power. Across Asia, the government could do more to work with business to try and increase our on-the-ground commercial presence there. There's scope, I think, to work better with Europe now in Asia. But in a way, these are, as I said, evolutions. And I think you know, when you stand back and look at the investment in bilateral relations in Asia and in regional architecture, especially in trade, I think it's been very good under both the Turnbull and Morrison governments. You can see this very strongly in India, Vietnam, Indonesia and Singapore, for example. And then the last point I'd make is I think you, you do have to pay attention to see it. But I do think foreign policy is beginning to adapt to both the realities of a COVID world and the further dramatic change we've seen in our external environment since the publication of the white paper at the end of 2017. I'm not talking about the government walking back from the high level strategic objectives in the white paper. In fact, DFAT has said publicly that the pandemic has not altered their currency. 
But within that framework, some specific policies are beginning to evolve to suit the times. You've half answered my my follow-up question, Richard, which was what could new and creative thinking look like when it comes to Australian diplomacy, especially when it comes to the the most difficult issue, like those hinted at in uh, Prime Minister Morrison's speech? Yeah, so I've mentioned a few more things we could do in Asia. I think I'm going to come at your question from an entirely different direction and just note that we have a couple of very big, almost what you might call defensive foreign policy issues that are really going to soak up a huge amount of attention and diplomatic muscle, and they have to be big priorities. I think Alan and I both touched on this, but we're going to have to work harder to influence US foreign policy. That's always a challenge with the US or with any great power, of course, and it's harder again with this administration. But if a if we get a second Trump administration, and we should by no means rule that out, it could make the past four years look like a bit of a walk in the park. And we're going to have to be clearer where we can with the administration on the fact that our national interest are not served by competition with China slipping into confrontation or let alone conflict. It's not in our national interest for America to keep withdrawing from multilateral commitments with our plan B. We have different economic interests. And I think it's notable that the government has begun carefully to make some of these points publicly now in a way uh, that you haven't seen before, including in the Prime Minister's Aspen speech. And then if Biden wins, we'll have a different but no less significant set of issues to manage. We'll be under a lot of pressure on climate change, for example. And we won't want America to be so distracted by that domestic agenda and challenge that Alan mentioned that it loses focus on our part of the world, or indeed that it uses its competition with China as leverage to make progress on issues like climate change, which in the progressive camp advocate. And lastly, of course, the China relationship is now immensely hard for any Australian government to manage. We don't have time here to go into this, but that will of course, continue to soak up immense amounts of diplomatic resources, time and attention. Alan? Yeah, look, my my only comment would be a a concern that our Australia's foreign policy ambitions seem to be seem to be shrinking. You mentioned five eyes. I mean I, I come from a generation where five eyes was a, a concept which was uh, whispered quietly in, in corridors, not bled over the front pages of newspapers as an alliance. Now, you know, I'm all in favour of close relations with Americans and Brits and, you know, who can go past a good evening with Canadians and, and New Zealanders, but this is easy. You know, it really is easy to talk to to such people. Ditto with the Pacific step up. I'm in, in, in favour of that. But talking to the small island states who speak English and play rugby and, you know, go to the same sorts of churches we, we do is, again, not not hard. So, you know, we, we need to pay particular care, I think, that we're not simply hanging out with mates in the time ahead. Now, I know the government would deny that it's doing any of that, but it's always it's always seductive to slip back into those easy patterns of relationships. Uh, the world is harder and we need to recognise that and we need to deal with the hard bits of it as well as the easy bits. 
It's even more seductive in the sense there's also a, a domestic political logic. I mean, not foreign policy is not too politicised in Australia, but front page headlines still matter. And I imagine any government is going to want to be able to say it's doing things, it's, it, it's, it's having productive discussions, rather than only have headlines about tension and conflict and, and a flailing relationship with China. So it seems like that sort of media public discourse angle is also orienting us towards doing things that are hard. I mean, you would hope the hard work is happening behind the scenes, but in terms of what's being briefed to journalists and the, the mm. narrative that a government wants to project about what it's doing on a foreign policy space, you can see it easily slipping into that logic. Final question for the both of you, how much benefit would there be in the government preparing a foreign affairs strategic update and would it be worth the effort? Richard? As long as I didn't have to do it, it would be worth it. <laughs> um, I think we are close to a point where it would be, partly because of that point that I made that policy is actually, within the broad strategic outlines of the white paper, the implementing arms of that, if you like, are starting to evolve and adapt. I'm trying to write something on this now, actually, not very successfully, I should have to say, but if you look across recent policy announcements and speeches, there is now, I think, enough to say, and there, there is potentially an argument for bringing it together into one place and to make it appear with the defence strategic update. But of course, you know, these things are never as simple as they seem. They are very resource intensive to do. And I would just make one final point, which is, of course, both the Department of Foreign Affairs and the government, and of course the bureaucracy more more generally are under immense pressure and strain as we try to deal with the pandemic crisis both at home and abroad. Alan, do you have any last thoughts? Uh, no, not beyond what what I said before, and and I think Richard is right. I think that I think the time is coming for such an update, but the time won't arrive until after the U.S. election uh, when we when we know a bit more clearly what we're going to be doing or what the world will be like over the next four years. Okay, well, on that note then, Richard, thank you very much. We've taken up a lot of your time. I imagine this will become a double episode if it stays in its entirety. So a terrific conversation, a lot for our listeners to think about, and hopefully you'll come back again at some point down the track. Well, thanks very much. For your listeners' sake, I suggest edit hard, but it's uh, <laughs> been a fascinating and rich discussion and i look forward to listening to the final product well as always thanks to aaa intern mitchell mcintosh for research and audio editing today xc chong for research support and of course rory stenning for composing our theme music thank you and talk to you again soon <laughs>